Brothers and sisters, I desperately want to serve you this morning. So let's begin with prayer. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you now that you'd remind us that it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? And we pray, Father, in these next few minutes that you would remind us, O Lord, not only of your judgment, but that in Jesus Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment. So to that end, open our eyes now that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful word. And what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. All for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved Son, who lives with you and who reigns with you together with the Holy Spirit. One God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. Well, it's still February, but I imagine many of you are already making plans to go to the beach this summer. A few years ago, I read about dozens of surfers and paddleboarders who were basking in the Pacific blue waters of Capistrano Beach in Orange County, California, when suddenly there was a bright red helicopter hovering just above them. And then over the roar of the helicopter's engine, they heard a frightening statement from the loudspeaker. Quote, attention in the water. This is the Orange County Sheriff's Department. Be advised, State Parks is asking us to make an announcement to let you know that you are paddleboarding next to approximately 15 great white sharks. We are advising you to exit the water in a calm manner. <laughs> calm manner. The sharks are as close as the surf line. Thanks for your cooperation, end quote. These paddle boarders and surfers were having a good time. But they failed to notice, beloved, that predators were lurking just below the surface. They failed to notice that certain death was close. They were in extreme peril and they didn't even know it. Now there are few warnings in life more urgent or frightening than your near great white sharks. But beloved, I promise you, as we turn our attention to the book of Jude, there is a far more frightening and deadly threat that we find in our passage this morning. We find a deadly threat of false teaching and false teachers who seek to distort the gospel of grace. And that threat is not only a threat to our lives, if we are not careful, 
It is a threat to our very souls. So I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Jude. And as you're turning there, let me just summarize it briefly. Jude wrote this brief letter. You can find it in the Pew Bibles, I believe, on page 1027. Or just go to Revelation at the end and take a hard left. That's the easiest way to find it. Jude wrote his brief letter to alert readers that they were swimming with sharks and they didn't even know it. What is this deadly teaching? What what is this false teaching? How do we recognize false teachers and how do we respond as a church? And what resources does Jesus Christ supply to us to combat this false teaching? Those are all questions that, Lord willing, we will find answers of in our passage this morning. Jude, we're going to just look at verses 1 down to verse 19. And so Pastor Mike gets all the happy verses next week. But we've got some intense verses this morning. I'm going to read it to, uh, to you and then we're going to jump in. Jude 1 down to verse 19. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who were long ago designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God, our God, into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who do not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme. All they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees 
in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Beloved, this is a challenging passage. And there's quite a bit to cover. But I want to persuade you that the main point of verses 1 to 19 is simple, it is plain, and it is clear. Here it is in a sentence. Fight for the faith. Verses 1 to 4, by remembering what the apostates did, verses 5 to 16, and what the apostles said, verses 17 to 19. Let me say it again. The whole point of this passage is to fight for the faith, verses 1 to 4. You can see it in verse 3, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Everything else in the passage explains, undergirds, and illustrates that main idea. Fight for the faith, verses 1 to 4. How do we fight for the faith? Well, two ways. By remembering. Remembering what? Remembering what the apostates did, verses 5 to 16. And by remembering what the apostles said, verses 17 to 19. And my prayer is that God would remind us of the dangers of false teachers and false teaching, but that he would also, in his kindness, reveal to us the glory and grace of Jesus who saves his people and who keeps us to the end. Number one, fight for the faith. Verses one to four, fight for the faith. Before we are called to the battle, the author introduces himself in verse one. You can see it. His name is Jude. He is a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. I take that James to be the James of Jerusalem, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, the author of the epistle to, to James, the, the epistle of James. He would have been the only James in the early church famous enough for Jude to say, I'm James's brother. But you notice this? Jude introduces himself not as the half-brother, right, of Jesus. If he is James, if James is his brother, he's the half-brother of Jesus as well. But he doesn't introduce himself to say, I'm related to the Messiah. If you were related to the Messiah, wouldn't you introduce yourself that way? 
Jude is humble. He says, I'm the brother of James and I am what? I'm the servant of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you here are not yet followers of Jesus. And you have serious, maybe you have serious doubts about the truth claims of Christianity. Jude is someone who understands you, my friend. He understands your doubts. Even though this man who wrote this letter grew up with Jesus, neither he nor James initially believed in him. John 7, 5 says, even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. It wasn't until Jesus died for our sins on the cross as our substitute and rose again on the third day for our justification and appeared to witnesses, did James and the other brothers of Jesus believe the gospel. You see, Jesus had mercy on Jude. And I think that's why later in the letter, Jude's going to say, have mercy on those who what? Doubt. Jude understands your doubts. And friend, Jude also knows that your doubts are no match for the mercy of Jesus. So friend, my plea with you this morning as you listen to this message is to take your doubts to Christ and ask him for mercy. Take your doubts to Christ and ask him for mercy. Who is Jude's audience? You can see it right there in verse 1. To those who are called, beloved, and God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, sometimes we skip those introductions, but don't listen. This is the, some of the best news in our passage, right? We don't want to just skip over this. What a great threefold description of a Christian. You see it? Called, beloved, and what? Kept. That word kept or keep will show up many times in Jude. Pastor Mike's going to explain it next week. But just linger here for a moment. It, it, we live in a world right now where people are confused about their identity. Many people are confused as to who they are. Well, Christian, God says in this verse who you are. Look at it again. Who are you? Brothers and sisters, you are called by God the Father. You are loved by God the Father. And you are kept by God the Father for Jesus Christ. If you're, if you're asking, who am I this morning? You can say on the basis of this verse, I am called, I am loved, and I am kept. Why does Jude tell that to us here because he's a great pastor. Because he's about to call this congregation to the battle. And before you go into the battle, beloved, you need to know who's on your side. Who's on your side as we fight for the faith? This gloriously good God is on our side. He has called us to himself. He loves us with an everlasting love. And he will keep us and guard us and protect us in Jesus Christ through the battle. Now that brings us 
right there to the aim of the letter. Look at verse 3. So don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. Here's the whole point. If you underline in your Bible, underline this verse. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So notice, Jude wanted to write a different letter than the one he wrote. He wanted to write about our common salvation, the things we have in common in Christ. He wanted to write Ephesians or Romans. But he didn't. He had to write a different letter, this urgent letter, the one that we're reading. And notice, he, he's calling us to contend for, notice the definite article, the faith. Do you see that? He's not calling us to defend and fight for faith in general. The definite article indicates there is a specific body of doctrine of beliefs, of truths related to the gospel that he's calling the church to defend. This was a faith that was handed down to us from Jesus to the apostles and now to all the saints. Verse 20, it's the most holy faith. And so brothers and sisters of UBC... The doctrine of the gospel of grace that we have been entrusted with. The apostles suffered for it. They bled for it. And most of them died for it. And so we must contend for it. To contend means to exert intense effort like an athlete in a race. One lexicon put it like this. He, one lexicon defines contend like this. I love it. The effort expended in a noble cause. What cause, beloved, in all the world is more noble than contending for the holy faith of Jesus Christ, the, the, the faith that was delivered to us through the apostles? There was a great church father named Athanasius, and in a letter when he was describing the holy faith that he had received from the apostles, he said, we are contending for our all. Oh, brothers and sisters, this letter helps us to fight for the faith because we're contending for our all. Why? Why did Jude have to change his letter? Look at verse 4. He tells us why. You see that little word for in verse 4? He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. And then he's going to tell us several things about these, these false teachers. First, look at this little brief sketch he gives. He's going to fill this out in a minute, but he gives us a little thumbnail sketch of the false teachers. First, notice their condemnation. Verse 4, they were long ago designated or marked out for condemnation. You see that? So these false teachers are not going to get away with what they're doing. They will be condemned by God. Their fate was written beforehand. They will be condemned. Number two, notice their character. Notice their character. Jude calls them ungodly people. They may be talking about God and working for a church even in a denomination that you know, but they're ungodly. 
They're ungodly. Jude's older brother said, Beware of false prophets, for they come to you in what? Sheep's clothing, but inwardly, what are they? Ravenous wolves. And then Jesus Christ said, Matthew 7, 15, You shall know them by what? Their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits. So you look at their character. They're ungodly. Notice also their conduct. Do you see that? What do these false teachers do? Jude says they, they do this. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. What does sensuality mean? It means living for the flesh. It means living for sexual pleasure and greed and lusts. To be a Christian, beloved, means to be saved from sensuality to sanctification. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. It doesn't mean we don't sin. But that the trajectory of our lives is radically altered when we come to Christ. But these false teachers, they pervert grace in order to pursue the flesh. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, training us to what? Renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts. And to live upright and self-controlled lives in the present age. These false teachers are saying, hey, God has grace. Do whatever you want to do. Notice lastly their creed. What do they believe? What do they believe about Jesus? Notice they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. This is the standard playbook for false teachers, beloved. False teachers all Deny the lordship of Jesus. So if you're ever hearing teaching that's undermining the lordship of Christ, be careful. False teachers put themselves up as the authority and they diminish the authority that Christ has and belongs to him. So what are we supposed to make of all this? You're sitting there thinking, okay, what's the takeaway for me? Well, just look around. I'm not saying the person on your pew. I'm just saying generally speaking, look around. Run for your life. No, I'm saying. <laughs> we are surrounded, are we not, in the evangelical world today by those who claim to be followers of Jesus, who want to remove God's commands and prohibitions in order to indulge the flesh. And pursue sinful desires. Instead of one man, one woman, for life, marriage is whatever you want it to be. Instead of sexual perversion being condemned for what it is, it's tolerated and endorsed. The love of money is indulged. And brothers and sisters, this is a lie as old as Eden do you remember our first parents? They listened to the voice of the serpent who wormed his way into the garden unnoticed and into the presence of God's people. And what was his lie? He twisted God's word of grace into sensuality. He turned God's good and right no into a seductive soul-killing, yes. It's a lie as old as Eden. And false teachers today still speak with the forked tongue, 
just like their father, that ancient serpent. They love, false teachers love to say yes where God has said no. Now children, listen to me. Listen to me, children. There are times where your mom and dad will say no when you want them to say yes. They say no because your mom and dad love you and they want what's best for you. And there are times in life where God our Heavenly Father in His Word tells us no because He loves you. He made you and He wants what's best for you. And He knows that holiness, your holiness leads to happiness, not getting your way. And Jude is calling all of us, children up through old age, to be careful who we're listening to. He calls us to fight for the faith. And so my question is, how do we recognize these false teachers? He gave us a thumbnail sketch in these opening verses. And now he's going to turn and give us a full portrait in the next verses from 5 to 16. But before we move on, I just want to say one other thing. Beloved, you notice in the passage, Jude doesn't call the senior pastor to the fight only. He doesn't call simply the elders to the fight. He doesn't even call the staff of the church to the fight. Who does he address this fight? Who, who does he invite to the fight, basically? The whole church. This is not the pastor's job only. This is our job. You are all a called into this fight as a member of this church. So, beloved, fight for the faith. How do we fight? Number two, number two, fight for the faith by remembering what the apostates did. Now, look at your Bibles. Where, where am I getting this? This is verses 5 to 16. You can see that this section is bookended by the same idea. Look, at, look again. Right there, we're told in verse 5, now I want to what? Y'all got to wake up now. Take a sip of coffee. I want to what? Remind you. Now look down. Look, keep looking down. At the very end, verse 17. But you must what? Remember. You see that? So in other words, everything in this section, everything in the rest of the passage, Jude has already informed this congregation about, but they have forgotten it. He's calling them to remember something. And the first thing he's going to call them to remember is what the apostates did. What do I mean by apostate? We don't use that word a lot. It, it, it kind of goes with apostles, so that's why I used it. But here, here we go. An apostate is someone who has finally and decisively defected or abandoned the true biblical faith. They're those who are now faithless, as it were. So we fight, by, we fight this fight of faith right now by remembering the faithless of the past. And so what Jude is going to do in verses 5 to 16 is go through a long list of Old Testament examples. And even examples outside of the Bible that his readers would know about. And he's going to list out all of these examples, all of these illustrations to show where apostasy, where faithlessness leads. It leads to destruction. 
And this entire section is one series of warnings to stir us up to fight for the faith. If you just look at your Bible, these are, all, these are just a list of some of the uh, examples. He references the exodus of, from Egypt, verse 5. Rebellious angels, verse 6. Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. The archangel Michael and the devil and Moses, verse 9. Cain and Balaam and Korah, verse 11. Enoch and Adam and the Lord's judgment on the ungodly at his return, verse 14. Now, I don't have time to explain every single one of these. And if you have any questions about any of these verses, I'm happy to talk with you and give those questions to Mike, okay? He's not here, so he can't defend himself. But I would just challenge you this morning, just look at these illustrations and just connect the dots. Jude assumes if you're following Jesus, you need the Old Testament scriptures. You need the Old Testament scriptures to persevere to the end. He's going to go to the Old Testament scriptures as a means to stir us up to fight false teaching and to keep following Jesus. So that, let this be an application for you. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, start with a single book and just start reading it. Genesis is a great place to start. You could come to the 9 o'clock hour where John is going through the heart of the kings. You could sign up in the fall for the Old Testament BTI. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, we have plenty of resources for you to learn these scriptures. Because we find all these things were written down, Paul says, for our instruction. So, William Faulkner once said that the past is never dead. It's not even past. And what Jude's going to do in these verses... He's going to connect all of these examples from the Old Testament scriptures. And he's going to connect them to the false teachers in the church of his day. So I want, I want you to see it. First, he's going to give us a couple things to remember about these apostates. Number one, remember apostates all share the same destiny. Verses 5 to 7. They all share the same destiny. I'm not going to read the verses again, but I just want to highlight what he says. The Lord rescued Israel from Egypt, but then many Israelites didn't believe, and they were destroyed in the wilderness. Numbers 14. Rebellious angels left their proper place, and Jude says God has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until he judges them on the last day. That's a reference to Genesis 6. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah practiced homosexuality. And because of that vile sexual immorality and perversion, those cities on the plain, Jude says, were destroyed by fire. It's a reference to Genesis 19. What is his point his point is all of these false teachers share and will share. If they don't repent, they're going to share that same judgment. Gloomy darkness, punishment, the eternal fires of hell. That's the first thing. And just when you think it can't get any worse and more frightening, it gets more worse. It gets worse and frightening. Look at verses 8 to 10. Remember, secondly... That apostates all reject authority. 
Apostates all reject authority. Verses 8 to 10. Notice verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, there it is, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Jude is telling us that one example, one way to know a false teacher is that they reject divine authority. And that is going to show itself in their lives. Verse 8. These false teachers were relying on their own experience, their own dreams as the source of their authority. Think about how many false teachers on TV right now say, I had a dream, I, you know, I went to heaven, God told me this, God told me that. They're relying on their own imaginations and they're claiming to be speaking for God. Well, this produces all kinds of carnality and blasphemy. Look at verse 9, he illustrates it in verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So in other words, let me explain what he's saying, and then I'll mention where, he, where is he getting this. This highest angel, Michael, the archangel, in this dispute over the body of Moses, even though he's the archangel, he doesn't even say, I rebuke you. To the devil. He says, the Lord rebuke you. Even this angel, the highest angel, recognizes the authority of God. And he doesn't presume on it. Now where is, where is Jude getting this from? In this passage in verse 9 and then later in verse 14, Jude draws upon two popular Jewish books that are not found in our Old Testament scriptures. If you want to know where they're from, it's called the Assumption of Moses and First Enoch. We're going to be reading that tonight in our life group. We're not. <laughs> but here's the deal. Jude appeals to these sources because they would have been very readily known in, in the congregation he was writing to. Most of whom were Jewish believers. Preachers do this all the time. You know this? Jude is a great preacher. That's why he's got so many illustrations. The problem is we don't understand his illustrations because we don't know the word enough. But he draws out a spiritual truth from sources outside of the Bible to illustrate his point. Good preachers do this all the time. Remember when Paul was preaching in Athens on the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Acts 17.28. Remember what he said? He said, in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Do you remember, you remember this? He's quoting from a pagan poet and from a pagan philosopher. He's drawing upon a true statement in sources outside of the Bible that are true to make a spiritual point. And that's exactly what Jude is doing here. If I, if I give an illustration of something that's true from a story like the Chronicles of Narnia or Harry Potter, that doesn't make Harry Potter scripture, okay? And again, if you have questions about this, I'll be up here afterwards. I'd love to talk with you about it. When you read the Bible, beloved, and you get to a confusing part, here's a little tip. You don't have to go to seminary to know this. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And what is the main thing here? It's right there in verse 10. 
Jude says, but these people blaspheme all they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. In other words, this sinful rejection of God's authority produces carnality and blasphemy. And the end result is destruction. You follow the false teachers, there's a, there's a, there's a, a last stop. It's called destruction. Now, brothers and sisters, Jude wants us to remember this warning. And there's one more warning. In verses 11 to 16, thirdly, we need to remember apostates all practice immorality. Verses 11 to 16, they all practice immorality. Once again, Jude illustrates the immorality of these false teachers, and he avoids us. He calls us to avoid their fate. Look, I'll just give you an example. Look at verse 11. Woe to them, and then he's going to tell us three illustrations. They walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. Jude pronounces woe. He pronounces sorrow. On those who are following in these footsteps of these wicked men from the Old Testament. Notice all three of these men that he gives illustrations of. They all looked outwardly religious at times. In Genesis 4, Cain made an offering and then he murdered his own brother. And then he was sent away from the presence of the Lord. Numbers 22, Balaam was a pagan prophet, a prophet for hire. He perverted the grace of God into sensuality, and he died by the sword. Number 16, Korah, he led a pitchfork rebellion against Moses, and he died for it. All of these men were outwardly religious, but inside they were wolves. And to illustrate this dichotomy of something that looks good, but on the inside is actually deadly, look at the next two verses, verses 12 to 13. He takes a relatively lovely image, and then makes it horrifying. So again, don't look at me, look at your Bibles. You need to feel this. If this feels like you're being waterboarded right now, you need to feel the urgency of this. We need this. Look at verse 12. Reefs that are hidden. Shepherds feeding themselves. Clouds swept along by winds. Trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Waves of the sea that are wild and cast up the phone of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Beloved, just when you think it can't get any worse and more frightening, in verses 14 to 16, Jude reminds his readers that the Lord Jesus is coming again to judge the ungodly. If you look at your Bible, you can see that word repeated again and again. He's coming. He's coming with his holy ones. Verse 14, he's coming to execute judgment and convict all the ungodly for all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. 
Now, friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to hear Jude's warning. There is a day coming when Jesus Christ will return and he will judge the living and the dead. There's a day coming where he will judge the ungodly. And on that day of judgment, that day of judgment, apart from repentance and faith, will become a night of an unending sorrow and condemnation. But friend, that day has not come yet. And Jude has good news for you. God will judge the ungodly. But the wonder of wonders is this. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. He's going to judge the ungodly. On the last day, but 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still weak, Christ died for us. So friend, Jude is calling you this morning to flee from the wrath to come by fleeing to the arms of Christ. Jesus died and rose again and he offers you himself this morning. So turn and trust in him. Receive him in the empty hands of faith. Flee from the wrath to come and be saved. Oh, brothers and sisters, we need to remember this warning. This brings us to the third and final part of our passage and we'll be done. This, this will be very short, this last point. We're to fight for the faith. By remembering what the apostles said. Not just what the apostates did, but what the apostles said. Look at verses 17 to 19. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And it is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Now, it's interesting, you ask the question, why would Jude do this? He's already, basically the apostles have just said what we've already heard. But there's something comforting, isn't it? Before you go through a trial, to be told you're going to go through a trial, right? How comforting, how loving of the Lord Jesus to speak through his apostles to prepare us so that we're not surprised, so that we're not shocked when false teachers show up at University Baptist Church. We shouldn't be shocked because the apostles said this was going to happen. Your homework is to go read the New Testament this afternoon and look for those times. They said it a lot. Paul says it a lot. John says it a lot. We should not be surprised. They predicted this would happen. And that's what Jude is comforting this congregation with. Brothers and sisters, you can trust God's word. It is utterly trustworthy and reliable. We, we, we sang earlier, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid from your faith in his excellent word. You can trust his word. It is true. It is trustworthy. You can bank your life on it. 
Let me close with this. Brothers and sisters, it's good to be reminded of these things. You notice all of this is stuff we should have already known. It's just by way of reminder. He's calling us to remember these things. And good pastors don't come up with new stuff. Pastors who preach the word remind you of things you've already forgotten. I I won't even remember my outline in five minutes after the sermon, right? We need each other, brothers and sisters. Part of the ministry of being a member of a church is reminding brothers and sisters around you of things they already know. You don't got to come up with new stuff. Remind us about the grace of Jesus Christ. Remind one another about the dangers of sin. Remind one another of the glories of the gospel. John Newton is my favorite pastor other than Brad. Other than Brad, I always got to say that. My favorite dead pastor is John Newton. He was writing to his friend, William Cooper. And if you know William Cooper's story, he was sorrowful to the point of death. And this is what Newton said in one of his letters. Quote, Jesus showed us mercy even before we asked for it. Though our enemies are many and mighty, Jesus is above them all. Though we walk in darkness, he's promised to return and he will gather us with everlasting mercies. You can say amen. Isn't that beautiful? Now when we look at this passage, I stared at it for a while. Where do you see the glory and grace of Jesus in this passage? That, that highlights so clearly the doom and gloom of the false prophets. Well, beloved, did you notice all the many ways that these wicked false teachers who seek to destroy and divide and discourage the church are the exact opposite of Jesus? Jude provides a kind of photo negative of the Savior. In this grim portrait of these false shepherds. So let me close by just pointing that out. How wonderful of a savior is Jesus. He isn't a self-centered shepherd taking advantage of the sheep. He's the good shepherd who feeds his sheep and tenderly cares for his lambs. Even the weak ones. And he calls them all by name. And he lays down his life for them. Jesus isn't a fruitless tree. He's the true and living vine who bears the fruit of eternal life in all who trust in him. Jesus isn't swept along like the waves of the sea. He's the commander of the winds and the waves. And he treads the storm. And the raging winds are calmed with a word. Jesus, listen, has never grumbled a single time about his bride. There's no deceit in the Savior's mouth. But instead, he loved her and he gave himself up for her in order to make his bride holy and blameless, washing her with the water of the word of God. His love makes her radiant. Jesus isn't a wandering star. He's the bright morning star and the blazing sun of righteousness. 
He's the brightness of his Father's glory. He's the light of the whole world. And he's the light of heaven above. Right now, angels and seraphim are hiding their face from the brightness of Jesus. And he's the light of the world to come. Because he's the one for whom the brightest glory that has ever dawned has been reserved forever. Brothers and sisters, I ask you again, how wonderful of a Savior is Jesus Christ. Beloved, we may be swimming with sharks, but in Jesus Christ you are called, you are loved, and you are kept And he has entrusted you and me with the gospel of his grace. The gospel of the good news of our Father's love for us. And he's illumined every step of the way. And he, by his almighty power, is keeping us to the end. To that bright day when sin will cease. And we will stand complete before the throne of God. And Jesus will gather us with everlasting mercies. Until that day. Beloved, fight for the faith. Fight for the faith. Let's pray.